Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we're joined from New Orleans by Gant Laborde. Gant is the Chief Innovation Officer at Infinite Red, an app design and development studio that specializes in React Native and artificial intelligence apps. Gant Laborde, we're so delighted to have you join us on Maintainable. Thank you. Glad to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of well-maintained software code? Well-maintained software code. Uh, I think that's an oxymoron. I don't think that (laughs) actually exists. Uh, uh, What I'll say is um, properly communicated software code uh, and properly tested software code. So that that is two parts. That's saying you are talking to the humans well and that you're talking to the computer quite well. And I think that that's, that's honestly, it's just a pipeline between those two. And ultimately, it's just the communication. Uh, if you've got a people problem or if you've got a computer problem, generally, most it's mostly people problems. So <laughs> I'd say that those skills, people's EQ and how they properly create a live document for that code and, and also set up something where people are willing to <laughs> actually touch it, you know, <laughs> that that's the key. If you set up something gorgeous once and you can't uh, fulfill it, I, I, I tell people this, you know, it's the, the persistence will get it done, but the consistency is what's going to keep it alive. Interesting. So you, you say that and you mentioned uh, tested. Are you referring to certain types of testing that you're looking to find in code bases or just like the testing strategy on like a holistic level or a bit of both? I think that I think that testing is the way we, we kind of communicate it. And I have a really big um, talk that I generally do about testing is the testing that we kind of talk about. We talk about it in an abstract and for every app, it needs to be solid. Uh, I've seen people write some pretty impressive tests that would only work for one particular app where they basically put the app into all these different possible states through this permutation machine. That's not something that uh, you know, like comes out of most testing suites, but it made sense for this particular app. And then I've seen other ones where, depending on the audience, it has like this ridiculously how far apart are these buttons and all kinds of cool aspects. So I, I find that you know, once you have your your audience, you have your expectations, you have your UX, you have essentially what you should be testing. Um, if it's mission critical software, if it's going to be flying people around, <laughs> yeah, you've got you've got to have like anomaly detection, right? But if it's got to be you know like selling, maybe it needs to have some kind of AB, some some kind of multi arm bandit kind of checking and testing along the way, like Amazon does. I think that the testing fits the product, and that's the only real answer. So there's not like a one-size-fits-all approach to testing that you're like, it needs to be unit tests, TDD type of approach? <laughs> I, I, you know, I wish I could say that. Yeah, I mean, I, I could say TDD is amazing, and you know, I, I'm, I'm guilty. I, I have a project that I'm doing for a conference talk, zero tests, because it's a project for a conference talk. And the trick is that uh, is a recorded talk. And if it works well and I explain my point, I've succeeded. 
There, there's absolutely no test that I really need besides um, human tests to make sure that it actually communicated what it needed to. Do you use the uh, metaphor technical debt at all in your day-to-day work? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. How do you define that on your end? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think technical debt is something where you are trading risk for some kind of advantage. So let's say you have, um, let's say you're, you're, you have a TypeScript project and uh, you, <laughs> you're, you've got this benefit of TypeScript, right? And then you bring in a third-party library and it does not have TypeScript support. So you, you do the colon any, and this is a JavaScript, a very JavaScript-specific solution, but hopefully most people follow because JavaScript's the most ubiquitous language. So you, you, you colon any on that. Because this is a library that you feel like uh, is well tested, but now you can't, you don't have the time and your scope to completely own it. You've kind of semi smoke tested it. You move forward with that. In that sense, I'd say, yeah, you took on a technical debt because the risk, you, you just play, you played some extra risk in, in terms for some extra freedom and speed. And if you want to, pay down that risk again later, then you have to pay your technical debt. Do you find that developers, like how do you go about explaining uh, technical debt to say your clients? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, so we, we, we work with a lot of different clients and so as a consult, so I work with infinite red and as a, as an agency, one of the things that can happen here is we can have a client come in with a budget, says like, this is what we want, and say, we don't want tests. And while we are a company who will fire a client or reject a client for moral reasons, you know, we have our guidance, we have our mentorship, but we don't like kick out people for, for not following the mentorship. You know, we want them to succeed and we'll give the best advice. But just like a doctor, you can go against medical advice, you can go against our advice. I think that when it happens is when I talk to a client, if I ever set up technical debt, I need to set it up in a completely unforgettable way. I need to attach it to something big, something many, something huge. And I need them to remember that clearly, because when you start throwing around TLAs, which are something we like to do in in software world, if you're not familiar, TLAs are three letter acronyms. And you start to see your client's eyes glaze over pretty much everything you say after that point, you're going to lose the efficacy of of what it was you were trying to say. In this instance, when you're talking about technical debt, you're talking about some payback or some kind of issue that's going to happen deep into the future. So you need them to remember that moment clearly. And so uh, what I'll do is I'll paint it in the worst case scenario and say this can happen or that can't happen or, or might not happen. And the trick is it's very memorable so that later on when something like that does happen, I can point back to that and they definitely remember it. Interesting. And, you know, maybe take a quick step back. You know, I know you mentioned so Infinite Red does client service work. What types of what do you what does your team focus on? Like what types of uh, projects are you working on for your clients? 
Well, because we love crashing things. We do things in JavaScript, everything JavaScript. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, we do, we do a lot of protection. You know, one of the things that we kind of enforce is uh, we enforce TypeScript on our JavaScript and, and things like that. But we do a lot of mobile and web. If you're needing like a, a mobile app and you want to kind of save some time and money or share a code base or teach your team, you know, we would do a lot of people who have never done React Native before will come in and we'll teach their team, well, like, here, you're, you're React devs. We either wrote or started writing your, your mobile app, or we just do a teaching session. We build the entire app in React Native, and then we kind of like lend that on to them a bit. And so lots and lots of JavaScript. JavaScript for mobile, JavaScript for desktop apps, through you know React Native again, because it's so platform independent. Sharing business logic and code bases, which honestly, that's a great place for us to write tests for the, the shared logic. And also to react for the websites. Nice. And are you, you know, you mentioned that there's that your clients sometimes have their own, some of their own React developers that are building things. So you're they be might be moving over to wanting to extend that to a mobile application of yeah. some sort or a desktop app. And so you come in and you help them do that. So you're not only just training them, but you're also helping build that out or building it out on their behalf and then passing it potentially back over to their team so they can continue. Admittedly, like I work in the web development space primarily. And so I'm always curious about like, what does technical debt look like on say a mobile device? Or is it still very similar given that you're working with something like React Native? Oh, I could tell you um, React, just mobile. Mobile is set up to be a lot more complicated than web, just in, in every single aspect. And that's that's probably the biggest gotcha, but that's what we kind of help people through. I'll say that if you want to build like a really neat web app, you know, you kind of get this fast iteration cycle. Even the security, you could just make it for your company or something like that. Once you start kind of getting things that need to go to the you know the Google Play Store, the the App Store. You have this sort of anybody can download it <laughs> moment. Now you could password it just for your team. You could do all this other stuff. But I mean, it brings in all these, I would say, almost like insecurity. Like you have to think of a way bigger picture. There's no choice. Now you could do internal builds, things that expire. You could you kind of do that stuff. But almost everybody who's looking to go to mobile is looking for the reach. They want to get on edge devices. They want to reach the most people. And that always makes this very zoomed back story or where people sometimes have trouble explaining their apps. Developers have trouble seeing the full picture of all the different states an app can be in. It's, it's a bit more complex for mobile always. And even though I'll say React Native has really bridged the gap on that because it used to be I'll make a change in an app and then I'll have to compile for the next five minutes to see how it's going. I can actually hit save in a file and then see that instantly in native with React Native. So, so my developer cycle is very quick. It's still nothing like what you really get from a website, though. A website's like instantly shareable, instantly updated, instantly attached to prod, then dev, or whatever you want to kind of say, or staging. I feel like there's still some cruft and hurdles for, for mobile. And that's the stuff that we help people with when they're used to a web world. 
Yeah, that, that that's interesting. I, I can imagine there being a lot of challenges with like how quickly you can roll things out, like a patch or uh, an update for people. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you're like, okay, we're we we made it available, and everybody has to go. Their phones need to sync that somehow before it's or whatever devices they're using. Yeah. Whereas the web, you get that benefit of like you can just deploy it, and then everybody's going to be working off that same. And I get maybe that's something I don't understand about the, how the React Native world, but is is that is that end up being an impediment, or does that require a lot more rigorous testing before you roll out? Do you feel like it's slightly less continuously deploy? Like I, I'm guessing that's what may or may not be a term you're able to use in your in that world. I would imagine. Well, you can there, the, you can shoot yourself in the foot if you try to do it without thinking it through. There are over the air updates that you can do. So uh, as long as you are not touching any native. And the JavaScript driver, so I'll go back to saying, like, if the business logic changes and the assets that are on device don't change, you can actually ship a new JavaScript bundle. Different uh, systems are, you know, enabling that. You, you can either host it yourself or you can use Microsoft service for it in App Center. But you can basically send an over-the-air update just to get the app automatically like it would be like a website. And that's a really cool aspect. But it comes with its own foot guns because you, you have all these devices that are in a state. And then you inject a brand new state on top of that. And uh, if they have something like stored in, in, on the phone that doesn't match that state, you need to have a migration plan as well. Whereas uh, I'll say like most websites don't care about a migration plan because they're not dependent upon the cookies that are stored on the device or local storage nearly as much. And if they were if they cared about the local storage a lot, they would have the same problem. But most of the time they're like you're on the web, whereas mobile devices care a lot about offline modes to the point where you know, if I add a new feature into the business logic and that's not stored into the state of the phone and it loads in as null, or do I flush everything out of the phone and just kind of say, hey, you have to log in again and kind of get your stuff fresh because we sent out an update? That's a fair way to do it. But it's a conversation that web developers don't usually have. Mm. Quickly circling back to the uh, technical debt topic. Mm-hmm. What do you believe developers often get wrong when they're discussing technical debt, either with themselves and or with their stakeholders? I guess that, you know, we can kind of get into the term technical debt. Some people really get upset about it being called that. And some people absolutely think that's the correct term. And I think it's because we use it. It's sort of I had a a conversation with someone the other day about what is a mentor. One person was saying, Oh, well, they, you know, I, I dislike this. I like, I like that. And then another person was saying, well, that's not a mentor. Like, your definition's wrong. You're thinking of a sponsor, not a mentor or somebody like that. And I feel like the same thing happens over in technical debt. Some people will actually just throw the term out there saying, like, here's something where we cut a corner, technical debt. And there's no accounting. There's no, there's no ledger. It's not a real debt. It's just been a, an ephemeral term that they can say to, I cut a corner. Now, that's not a debt. So I think that what happens is when people kind of hear this term, you have to make sure that your team has an agreement on what that definition is so that not later on someone says, what are you doing with all this? Like, how did you handle this? They go, what? Yeah, it was technical debt. Of course, it's it's just done. That's like, 
that's a cleanup cycle for someone in the future is how they see it. And that's like, that's not how we see it. Do you own that debt? Do I own it? And so I think that the biggest part of that is keeping the terminology clear. Yeah, I'm always curious about, you know, you can see different people in their career trying to figure out how they, well, how they might refer to technical debt, whether or not they might just disagree with how it was built, you know, maybe, or so it's, is it a disagreement or is it like you, as you were saying, it's more of a, uh, just on like the the approach or the architecture that was taken, or maybe it's just bad, messy code <laughs> right. that that someone somebody else wrote. Maybe their past self too. But uh, is that technical debt? I mean, it's like I feel like it's a, a gray area for some people. And so, yeah, I, I, that's why I like to ask that because I think I hear different answers all the time, and um, I think it's important for the team to have some shared understanding of that. I'm also really curious about this conversation you had the other day about mentors versus sponsors. What do you mean by a sponsor in in this kind of scenario? I think where you're, yeah. So so we actually we got into it pretty good, and so this is this is some golden content for you. I know it's a little bit off the normal topic here, but um, some companies have a formal sponsor and have an informal sponsor. Some people are have like a personal relationship of a, a like of a mentor or something like that. You know, some companies try to enforce this structure. And people don't follow up with those terminologies. And I'll say, like, I have a different vision of what I see as a mentor. And that's a that's a huge undertaking. That's a that's a time, that's an effort undertaking. And then some places see that is there's a person who's just a little bit further down the road who knows a little bit more about this. That person's not really a mentor, that person's a sponsor. The sponsor is is a person who's who's involved, I mean, of course, we're all going to have different definitions. So if somebody's like, that's not what I use sponsor for, sure. that's fine. You know, I'm, I kind of, funny enough, I think of sponsors, I think of all the movies with 12-step programs, you know, and the person's always got a sponsor who's further along in the 12 steps, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's sort of like what you are. You join, a, <laughs> this is a depressing definition. You joined a company, <laughs> you're at step one, you found somebody who's on step seven to be your sponsor. And then uh, there's the aspect of like a coach, Right. Does, is a coach a mentor? No, no, not at all. As a matter of fact, a coach doesn't have to be as good as you, but they they hold you to something wrong. A good coach tells you when you're doing something wrong. If you never told that you're doing something wrong, that's not a coach because they're not they're not invested in you. They're not invested on how you could do better. And then you have peers, advisors, teachers I think that saying a mentor is all of those things corrupts the idea of a mentor. And that's the conversation we're having the other day is that a person's like, yeah, this person's not doing it. I was like, that's not a mentor. Interesting. You know, I'm thinking about that with my own, in my own team. And we, we talk about mentorship in ways, or, you know, we bring someone in and like when we have a new hire, we'll be like, okay, they get a buddy and we're not saying that they're their mentor. They're just kind of like a guide or, you know, like we're going to show you around and help you get familiar with how we do things here. But then you get into that. I like that idea about thinking about a sponsor, someone that's a little bit further down the path, but they're not necessarily providing a lot of, uh, I guess, mentorship. Right, right. You have, as a mentor, you come up with exercises that help a person's growth. You know the path, but you are an expert in, in sort of like this lesson. The, the, you see the string that actually controls the system, and that's what you're passing on. And then you can see where a person's off the path, and then you can give them the exercises to get back to that. A mentor is like a much more involved version of that. But, and I think like people can actually help each other laterally in any direction. And so I think that it's a little unfair to, 
to to call everyone a mentor, but like uh, if a person's just been in the company longer and they can answer those questions, they don't have to be invested in this person's career growth or, or showing them this bigger picture. Hell, they don't even have to see it themselves. They can be a sponsor or a coach. And trying to use some pop culture here, would you say that Yoda was a mentor or a sponsor? I think I think that Yoda was definitely a mentor because it, it, it's that wiseness that kind of comes off. Kind of knew the buttons to press and the, the the abstract exercises to go ahead and get things done. Well, it depends on which Yoda, right? Are we talking about the one who makes the mistakes, doesn't see things and <laughs> flips around and then picks up his cane afterward? We're, we're talking about like 1970s Yoda, right? Yes. <laughs> And I think that that's a bit more of a mentor. There's these like abstract exercises that that give focus for for a Jedi. Yeah. So, do you use anything like Scrum or Kanban in your organization? So, um, we, our normal process is a little bit Scrum like, but we have to adapt in some way. So, our team is about thirty people, and we have subsets of teams go into projects. So you could have a project with five of our team members on it. And, you know, everybody's communicating. They've set up a clean process. Everybody knows what everybody's working on for that week. You've got Trello cards with points. Certain amount needs to be dragged over. And these are the more important ones. Kind of uh, scrum Kanban sort of methodology. And then you might have two developers over on a project working with some Fortune 500 and they're stuck in JIRA. And they have whatever their process has to be. It's unfortunate because we know we work best with our process, but um, which is writing tests, highly communicating, working with our team, our designers, our project manager. But we're in the world of sales and we're in the world of consulting. And so you can come in and grab a pretty big subset of our skills and still work with us. What we won't our, our sort of most atomic unit is we will have one developer go into your team, sort of like almost as placement, and you can have a week of time at the minimum. And you can't buy an hour from this person, right? It's just ridiculous. And then you, so you're buying them for from week to week to week. That's probably going to go away at some point. One person on a project it's kind of lonely for them, especially when they're consumed into a larger, more faceless companies. Maybe we'll do like two person minimum for something like that. So unfortunately, our internal process works really well. You can message our designer and say, what was your, your like concept here? And then get a meeting immediately. Or you could just end up going to another place where the designers are only available once a month, you know, <laughs> and no one knows what they are talking about or where their files are. But you know, I think that's that builds a little bit of character. You know, consulting, it, it's a difficult racket sometimes and difficult work makes strong people, but it's still hard. No, I, I hear you there. And I also work in the consulting world. So that's uh, yeah. there's overlap. I'm sure in like the embedding people in someone else's team, I always think of it as like, it's like a fun, I like to think that hopefully for them, it's somewhat of a good learning experience. Be like, I always feel like when they go in those environments, they always come back being like, I really appreciate how we do things here and how <laughs> compared to that. Yeah. And so, and it's, it's hard to <laughs> like go in there and then trying to find ways to be, to help those teams also like, Hey, have you, 
have you when's the last time you really evaluated these processes that you're following here and like is there you know we're we're seeing some gains in these ways it may not work in your your culture or what have you but there's still there's always room for kind of improvement so it's always sometimes you can get in there and and kind of help them rejig and shake things up sometimes and it's it's always different on how why people you know, companies call us too they might be having a challenge with their existing process and team and they're like I, we don't know what to do you know or it's it's not we're not moving it doesn't feel like we're moving as fast as we used to so maybe if we got some fresh blood with that's experienced we just can you work past the bs that we're dealing with when you're working on those types of projects i'm assuming you're working on existing code bases and not just always just a brand new greenfield application is that yeah. pretty accurate so what do you think makes a good guest in someone else's code base so I think that the first thing, one of the things I'll say I, I love to do is I kind of go in there and I auto janitor because sometimes these things were written in a way that was, I guess, just harried and, and they had some kind of deadline. And I think that when you first start a code base, a big part of what I need to do is I need to understand the business logic because very few apps are ever written to the point where you can come in there and be productive without understanding the full business workflow or, or, or some subsection of a business workflow. So when I'm janitoring, I'm cleaning up code, I'm understanding the business logic, and I'm providing a value. Some Sometimes I show up and they're like, that's not what we want you to do first. The trick is it's what you call it. I don't, I don't actually call it janitoring. I don't call it this. They're like, this is my ramp up. I'm ramping up. And my ramp up comes with code commits and cleanup. Ah, now that's a good ramp up. So I think that that's a great way to sort of come in there, sort of like express value while sort of getting yourself some sanity. And let's, let's not lie here. Cleaning up the code a little bit is a self-service as well. Definitely. Like <laughs> you, you, you feel better touching code after you Ah, I can work in here. I've, I've set up my office in a way, you know, and I think that that really helps out. So even though it looks to be selfless, there's a little piece of that that is 100% for me. I find, you know, I've seen some scenarios where we might have someone joining a project or when there's people that have been on that, that software project and the client in for quite some time. And if we go in and start before we start asking for permission to start sending them maybe a pull request on for some of those things, we've seen some, there's been a couple scenarios where we've got a little bit of pushback. We're like, don't worry about that right now. We don't, you know, that's not what we want you focus on. Can you please go take care of this first feature? And there's always that kind of like, well, this is going to make my life easier. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're like, I think it's in a weird way, but like we, they know that we're potentially seemingly expensive compared to maybe an employee. And so they're like, well, we didn't want it to like the most expensive person on the team updating the readme file, but you're just like, but why didn't you do it yourself? <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you, yeah, we've got that, uh, you know, it depends on who has the control and who's driving it. And I want to say that that's always, there's always a gradation. Whether it looks like one person has all the power or one person doesn't, you can actually get a bit of a trade-off with something like that. So let's say there's one project that we had. I can't ever know if I'm allowed to say clients' names or not. So you'll just have to, we'll call this uh, Client A. <laughs> and they were in a rush, right? They bring you in, they want the, the dirty done. They're in a rush. What we did was, we started it off, it was just two of us on that project. I think 
we ramped up to three at some point. But when we started off with two of us, I spent half my week doing some cleanup, getting that set up. And then the other dev kicked butt, you know, on some stuff. And then we kind of switched back. I'd give them a little bit of more of the fluffy tasks, a little bit more of the low hanging fruit. And then I would kind of dig in a little bit. It wasn't exactly the cleanup at the speed we needed. And it wasn't the ramp up that we needed, to be honest, either, because if you just give me a chance to understand what the hell I'm writing, I can write it a lot better. But some people don't understand that. So what we did was we hit it at half throttle with both of us having deliverables at the end of it, but also being able to like kind of understand this higher concept. And that was that was the most useful aspect for me. And then I'll, I'll say once the other person kind of got running and, and a- actually active, I was just choosing my tasks and I was coming around fixing things for them. And, and that's another thing, like it's, it's the term. I fixed something, right? I found something that wasn't working and I fixed it. Tr- truth is, I did fix it. I just cleaned it up like a lot along the way. Thinking a little bit more about, you know, your processes and you're talking about how you're using Trello and story points, things like that. Are there metrics that you're using within your team to kind of measure how like velocity or output of your team and different projects outside of how much you're making financially? (laughs) Yeah, it's really hard to measure value in code. It really is. You could have a person write one line of code and it's insanely valuable. Like it's just the metrics that you can use is, uh, is this person bringing value to the project? Now, of course, we have a certain number of points for the team that's sort of expected, which is deliverables. But at the same time, I think that I don't care if I see one team member get, you know, 90 points and another team member get 10 points. If at the end of the week, they're high-fiving saying, great job, they've delivered their value. One's enabled the other, one's helped. I don't care what the numbers are, but if we have a disconnect, if there's, it's a human problem, you know, as well. Because I know they're delivering an entire week's worth of value and clients hate that term. Right? Even, even when you're talking about a project, it's like, what's the value you want out of this? They can't even tell you that. And, and they're afraid to tell you that because then they know how much it actually costs. Even in, from the sales call on, you kind of know what you're going to deal with. But like I said, our, our, our metric is, yeah, we do have some numbers. Yeah, we want to see somebody's light on enough time to know that they're working. But uh, at the end of the week, if things are around about where they should be on average and the team's actually processing and working and, and, and communicating together and we're seeing that, that that's our metric. <laughs> you know, like no red alerts go off. Boom. <laughs> you, you, they're doing a good job. Right. It's always interesting, like when I'm talking with different people, like in the think of the client services world where I think where we exist, and then I talk to people that are within product companies, and they've got their set of metrics that they're trying to use to analyze their you know <laughs> yes. efficacy and stuff and such. But the you know as a fellow client service person, I'm always like, how what other ways can I be measuring things a bit more effectively? So I'm trying to get some free advice here. Uh, it's, it's, it's challenging. It's value. It, like like the the problem is how do you measure that kind of value on a person? And then also we, we, I'll tell you another thing. We're 100 percent remote. You know which which actually believe it or not helps with that because I've been at the job where a person sits at a desk and that's what they did and no one questions the work they did because they're nice. They're first person in and they're last person out. So 
they're doing their job. But when you take a look at like what what the deliverables of that are, I mean, they have no idea. And the difference is with for remote, no one knows when you're at your desk or when you're not too much, you know, and you it's the only way you show that you showed up to work is to deliver value. And I think that that's like a that's a pro for remote work. You know, it wins on letting people be flexible, but still understanding what they need to they need to do. You know, when you're working with your team being remote and and such, when you're working with clients that have, I mean, I know we're recording this in the middle of, you know, a pandemic where everybody's working from home <laughs> now. So I think everybody thinks of the remote, but it's, it's, it's not, oh, no. we're, we're not all in the same way yet, but I know that there's a lot of organizations where that's not normal. So do you find that there's any interesting challenges in the conversations about you having someone, do you still allow the people on your team to be pretty flexible with their schedule in some ways when we're trying to align it with a client's schedule where they're like, well, we need people to be around from nine to five you know, we need to know they're available and working at the same time that our team is time zone or whatever. Do you find that you have to, that's a challenge for you at all? Or is that's a great question. And what I'll say is we have an asynchronous structure. Everything we do is doing an asynchronous structure. So if you get a code, um, you know, hitting your server on a Saturday, it's just, you know, I mean, like it doesn't matter, you know, that just means that it, it doesn't make a big difference to us, but you have these sync points. And so as a remote company, you have specific synchronous points. The goal for a remote and for, for uh, you know, we're, we're, all, we're just remote across the US, right? So what you're looking at, three hours difference most. But the trick is I want people, you know, some people have kids. Some people have to take their kids to school. Some people wake up super early and kind of get things done. When we work with the client, you need to manage the sync points and they need to be met. But we need to keep those minimal. So if you have a stand-up every day, you know, that's a lot of sync points. You have to make that stand-up. But honestly, we're not a big fan of that. We're a big fan of your sync points or your presentation to your clients. You have maybe two sync points a week would be a sweet spot. You have a sort of like a check-in and a presentation of the week. You know, that would be a great way to kind of have it set up. Sometimes it's even less. <laughs> we have one client that's like, let me know when you're ready to show me the full thing. <laughs> like, we, we almost have to make sure that we schedule more sync points to that person. But, but push the rest to asynchronous, and it's totally fine. It, it really doesn't make that much of a difficulty. Now, we do have a client right now that's overseas, and we're over here. So we have a sync point at 7 p.m., which is not normal. But... Because I think of all the goodwill that we have with a you control your schedule, no one's batted an eye or had a problem with making it for this one client. You're working on this project. You have a 7 p.m. sync point. I mean, that's it. You you, you control the rest of your day and how you're productive. Um, and I think that because we've had that goodwill going forward, the reciprocity comes back when we need to do this. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or maybe even Twitter. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Gant Laborde.
like to pivot a little bit over to artificial intelligence because I know that's an area that you are oh, yeah. focusing on. And, and I came across, actually, you have a, like an AI FYI newsletter that I just subscribed myself this morning. So I'll be looking forward to that. And you add another subscriber there. Woohoo! What sort of challenges do you find in that space? I'm, like, I'm not that, uh, I haven't personally gotten that deep into outside of watching Terminator, (laughs) getting into any sort of AI thing or watching, reading some various clips every once in a while or seeing the highlights of something doing something uh, in a video or something. But what sort of challenges when it comes to software maintainability are you finding? And are there anything unique about that type of sphere? Yeah, it's it's a it's a different beast. It's so it's going to be our future in so many ways. It's going to help us in development so much. I'm actually watching people build software right now that writes tests for your app. It, it goes back and backfills tests. And then it also is willing to go ahead and say, we think that this code might be broken because we're pretty sure that this should have passed and it didn't, you know, like some anomaly detection on that. Just really amazing stuff. And as we're recording this, Twitter is blowing up with GPT-3 code, you know, just having to do really cool stuff. What I'll say is we're still a long way away from just earth shattering kind of AI, but um, having it coming in and helping us in our developer process, it's going to start to change our jobs ever so slightly. Everybody's going to have to know what it is. You have to understand it a bit. And the, the sort of limitations of the maintainability of that is that we're maintaining, if you created this from scratch, you're maintaining a large set of data. Um, And so you have to worry about the training time. Uh, Supposedly GPT-3, they estimated, took about $12 million to train. You know, it's OpenAI's product there, and we're we're all getting to use it. We're playing with it. But, I mean, that's that's a serious endeavor of CPU and GPU and whatever TPU cycles that they had to go through. And that's cool. But because of that, we're able to use it. But we also inherit all of its bias, and we're seeing that in AI as well. <laughs> if you're not the maintainer, you you also you inherit whatever the bias was from the maintenance was, and so that's a big concern because AI has brought up ethical and political concerns in a way that technology has not done in the birth of computing and the birth of the iPhone and and the mobile network and laptops. We're seeing it cross new boundaries and bring in new criticisms. So you have to be careful. And also the the climate of the world in 2020 is ridiculous. So if you do something wrong, it's already a powder keg because there's so much going on. So I'll say that you've got to be a bit more careful. And checking the bias and checking the ethics is key in AI. Yeah, you know, you hear things about like with various machine learning challenges that they've had or making sure you have a like a, a diverse group of people that are involved in planning things like that out, being helpful, just to even talk about some of that. But uh, how are are there ways that you've seen that you've been able to introduce this into some of the projects that you're working on with clients yet? Or is this still kind of in the, in that early phase of more of R&D on your end? Well, we have some uh, we have some AI clients. I would love to have plenty more. We had one where... All right, I'm not going to say the company, but I'll say what we did. It was a website that applied makeup. So you would just be able to apply the makeup and then hit the purchase button, and then you would get that makeup, right? That would kind of go to you. And then uh, we did another one for 
I don't know if I'm allowed to even say the product for it, but it was really cool. It kind of helped you. There were already companies that did this, but they applied AI and that was their disruptor. And so they kind of did some really cool stuff. The a having the AI kind of do something that would take a person dedicated to you and your kids and all the whole process, the AI was doing it. And uh, that was their disruptor in the industry. Really cool idea there too. I'm happy to see people coming in with these ideas and some of them show up knowing every single aspect of what they want. And some of them show up and say, hey, tell me how to do this. You know, and I know that you're also involved in the open source community. Um, are you actively maintaining any open source projects at the moment? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I could tell you this. Whew, you want to talk about maintaining. <laughs> maintaining open source. Am I right? I mean, everyone shows up. I've had... GitHub issues. So I, I used to maintain this project. We passed it on to our CTO now called Ignite. It's got 11,000 stars on GitHub. It's a quick starter for you starting a React Native app. It's what we use internally. Basically, go ahead and start off like with all the bells and whistles you probably need built in. You know, So that's what we do with Ignite. And I've had people show up and be jerks. I've had people show up and do pull requests that I was like, that's a week and a half worth of work for free. Thank you so much. That was amazing. I appreciate you. I had people show up and break things. <laughs> uh, and right now I have a library um, called Not Safe for Work JS. <laughs> That's one of my favorite ones to maintain. And what it is, is it's a client side indecent content checking. So Facebook has thousands of employees to check their content for decency and YouTube as well. And you and me, if we started a startup, you know, there's just no way we'd be able to afford something like that. So any user uploaded content, we're in trouble, uh, especially user to user content. Like that's a privacy concern. I don't want somebody reading those messages. But imagine that you've got a conference app, someone sends you a photo, and it comes in blurred. And it says like, Hey, our AI says, like, we're 95% sure this is very indecent. Please make sure you know this person and click to unblur. And then you can choose, like, you're like, whoa, wait a second. I don't want to see that. And, you know, this, this is possibly a violation to click on it. And that flags it for, for us to go review because they could click it and say, hey, send this off to be reviewed by the conference organizers or someone else. Well, then we've taken care of ridiculous amounts of labor, all AI powered. Uh, and so that's the cool idea. And that's 100% open source. That's cool. If you want to add uh, Not Safe for Work JS to your website, we have people constantly contributing too. I'll definitely include a link to that in the, the show notes. It's been a while since I've done a lot of like worked on projects where there's a lot of like, say, social sharing of videos or images and stuff like that amongst each other. But Or user any user uploaded right? content to a site. There was a lot of uh, Mechanical Turk back in the right. day. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I haven't thought about that in a while. Yeah. I'd be doing a disservice to our audience if I didn't ask, I think, a really important question that probably went on everybody's mind since I started this conversation with you, which is, what's your favorite type of project management chart? Oh, wow. <laughs> you want me to say Gantt chart, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, I was debating that question yeah. earlier with my fiance, and I'm like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it in. Yeah, well, I, the trick is that has two T's at the end of it. And I just have one. So I think the worst thing I could do is come up with my own project management chart, go around editing Wiki and start <laughs> creating my own. So that way, when people say it, like, well, which one? 
And then, you know, the one with one T will just show my face. That's the chart. <laughs> so as we wrap things up, a couple of last quick questions for you. What non-software development related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in the industry? Ah, uh, okay. The War of Art is a motivational book that's fantastic. If you suffered through The Art of War, which I think was interesting enough, I, I did not get as much out of it. But The War of Art is by far one of the most motivational anti-burnout books that I can suggest. It's a good one. It's been a long time since I read it. I should definitely revisit that at some point. Just bring it back. It, it, that's the, it's like a movie that you can listen to when you need to, or you can watch when you need it. It is very uplifting, and it'll it'll basically it'll make you go get stuff done. That's awesome. I'll include a link to that as well for everybody if you haven't got a chance to read that yet. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ramblings on software development online? <laughs> yeah, uh, so I have GantLaborde.com, and I'm GantLaborde on Twitter. You definitely just go check out the website. I'm on a bunch of different conferences. I'll be speaking at like React Native EU coming up. So if you want to see another spot where you can check some of this stuff out, you can go to my website, gantlabor.com. But if you go to my Twitter, you will get a bunch of weird and crazy and fun and interesting coding stuff. Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable Gant. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Oh, 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 oh.